renovation and resale and single family, probably the two things that are going to screw you up most. People overestimate the comps and they underestimate the rehab, which is like a double disaster on a flip. So we always try to underestimate our resale price and overestimate our capex. And that actually gives you not the opposite of hurting you. It actually builds in a margin of error. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So Ready to Scale is our second season here, where we focus on the business side of real estate, namely three key concepts that I like to call APS of real estate asset, process, and strategy. So by listening in, you will learn valuable business principles to help you scale your real estate business, whatever it might be. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and don't forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. Okay, so for the month of January, I'm giving away the guide to increasing your property income. The guide is built in three parts. So part one of the guide will discuss ways to directly increase income from tenants, meaning strategies you can implement directly to collect more money from your tenants. Part two of the guide will discuss indirect strategies to increase income, meaning ways to make the property more desirable so more tenants will want to live there and perhaps even pay higher rents than some other cheaper options. Part two discusses ways to increase income by implementing ideas that do not add any value to tenants, but still allow you to make extra money. You can find the guide at www.elliepearlman.com resources. So today on the show, our guest is Lee Carney. Lee is a successful single family real estate investor who flipped over 7,000 houses this last decade. 7,000. The total investment is over $500 million in property under his Spin Real Estate Company. Lee has been on the front line of flipping homes and his passion and expertise comes into play as he inspires and educates real estate investors through his Flip Your Income training program. Lee has begun to diversify his own investment portfolio in late 2013 when he co-founded a medical marijuana startup in Florida and is now the CEO of Kind Hemp. Welcome to the show, Lee. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to have you here. I think it's really interesting, you know, marijuana investing is something that personally I also invest in. So I think it's uh, interesting to see fellow investor that is involved with it as well. I was laughing. I saw a meme a few weeks ago. I was talking about the life of the Tampa entrepreneur and it had a club owner and then it had Bitcoin expert and then it had medical marijuana. I was laughing. It was really funny though because it was talking about all the things that were a fad. I think the difference though with cannabis is it's not a fad. It's not going away. 
it's the industry has got a lot of growth both domestically and internationally. So obviously you recognize the same thing. It's it's a it's a fun ride. We we're launching in Michigan. We just opened in Oklahoma. We're coming online in Florida with hemp first and then cannabis afterwards due to limited licenses here in Florida. It's exciting. I've just I've never been so excited about business with that industry because a lot of profit, a lot of good, feel good about it. It's just a great business. It's really, really, really rewarding business. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It's here to stay. It's not a trend. I mean, there's so much money going into it right now. I think in five years, people are going to regret not getting involved in in marijuana. You know, for us, it's more in on the real estate side. But yeah, absolutely. So can you tell me and the listeners a, a little bit more about your background and how you started in real estate? Absolutely. Actually, started by accident. Flipped a condo in Ireland where I'm from. I hated the property I bought because I got broken into literally a month later. The kids are ringing all the, the apartment numbers and whoever wasn't home, they realized was empty and they broke in. So I came home after work, my place is trashed. And so I just felt unsafe, moved out, got a fix, put it on the market, made about 35 grand. That was yeah, 16 years ago. And when I realized that that chunk of money was bigger than what my job was paying me, it was really easy. I said, this, this doesn't make sense and this makes a lot of sense. And even teaching today, I tell people, how many places can you go where you can make $10,000, $30,000 in one transaction? And I also use the example, I guess, for all your listeners out there. Think about someone in a convenience store. You know, they're selling on items that are $1 or $2. How many items do you have to sell that are $1 or $2? Like what, 10, 30, 15 to 30,000 of them to make the same you can do on, it, on one real estate transaction? That to me has always stood out about real estate. You know, today we did a deal in Boca Raton we'll make about a quarter million dollars flipping that asset. And I'm thinking, man, we're, there's, there's so few people that have this opportunity. We're not positioned in an industry like real estate where you can move massive amounts of money or, you know, by commercial multifamily, you can do a five, 10, 15, $20 million deal and set up a multi hundred thousand dollar a year residual. I mean, there's so few places in this world. And this is why I love real estate. You can maneuver between being a lender, between being an investor, between being a single family investor, a multifamily, commercial, and there's money everywhere. It's just about getting dialed into a strategy. So I got started by accident, but then I got real intentional, focused on single family. As you said earlier, I've done a lot of them now at this point, but I also got my, I got my butt kicked back in 2007. I was using the wrong strategy, completely lost everything, and made lost $2 million in, in my mid-20s. So I've experienced the highs and lows of real estate. And when you're on the wrong side of the market, it's a cruel mistress. I mean, you're in California. What did the market go down about 60 something percent in three years? I mean, that's about 2% a month. It was just decline, 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 decline. And typically at the beginning of the decline, it's a lot bigger. It averaged out to about 2% per month. But man, that was just a beating. And so I was getting out of the California market right when it started to not be hot and go through that frothy mm -hmm. stage. And that was in like 2004, 2005. And being a trustee state, it fell quicker than Florida, but then Florida fell right behind it. I mean, it was just annihilation of everybody who was in the market. So, you know, I've got a different perspective going this cycle. And even though there's several thousand houses made tens of millions of dollars, there's a part of me that says, you know, it's not, it's not worth taking risk. And so I look at money, brain damage and risk on every deal. And if it doesn't check all three boxes, I'm not doing the deal. I mean, I, I had a 550 house deal that one of my partners had brought me to invest in. And all I could see was downside risk in this new construction project. The pro forma numbers are great, 
But if I truly believe lending is going to tighten up, I mean, the government just dropped rates again. People don't realize what that means. That's the last tool in their tool belt to stimulate things. So it's crank it down, crank it down, crank it down. Or you could be like Europe with the negative interest rates, which is really a road mm-hmm. to nowhere. But I truly believe in most markets and just generally economically, we're at the end of the cycle. Everything's overinflated. You know, there's not much place for rates to go back down. They put them back up. Now they're putting them back down again. It's like, okay, well, where do we go from here? So I'm, I'm getting ready for the next market cycle and trying to look strategically at, okay, what should we be doing now? And what should we be doing when it, when it crashes? Just had a, a conversation this morning. I was training with my boxing coach, uh, Antonio Tarver, you know, five-time world champ, great guy. And, you know, someone I, I like to be around because you get to listen to a world champ three days a week. It's cool. He asked me, he goes, what should I be doing now? And I said, probably not a whole lot other than just flipping houses. I said, if you're here in Tampa, you should be buying, selling, wholesaling, not really trying to hold on to anything because the prices are high. But when prices are low, I said, you need to buy everything in sight and get money from everyone around you and make sure you're using that to buy everything in sight. Even if you're JVing, because you're buying stuff at the bottom of the market. And I, I saw this last cycle, people getting creative, they're making deals work. You know, they're talking about levered returns. They're getting away from the price because the price doesn't make sense. So you see people like syndicating money and trying to do deals that just don't make sense. I mean, in California, you're, you're seeing three yeah. and four caps and people are telling you that's great. Oh, try one and two cap rates. Four is good for California. But yeah, I, I definitely want to talk about where we are in a cycle in, in a minute. I, I want to go back for a second. You said that you started in real estate by accident. Briefly tell me what happened there. How do you stumble upon real estate? How do you accidentally start investing in real estate? It was, it was flipping that condo. I became intentional. After I flipped it and made money, I moved to Southern California, actually San Bernardino, where I was going to school. I was dating a girl out there from Redlands and lived in Long Beach. And so long story short, I decided to start flipping houses. I was an international student at the time, couldn't get a job. And I said, well, I made money in real estate by accident. Let me try to do this on purpose. I found a coach, a guy I was going to church with, showed me where to buy, what price point. I got hard money, did my first deal. Did ex- I was so scared. He was like, put a sprinkler system in, fix this, fix this, don't fix this. So I just did exactly what he told me. And I think I cleared 30, 35,000. That deal is right outside my office. People always ask, what are the two HUDs? The two HUDs are my buy and my sell, my very first property. And I walk by that every day when I come into my office and after that, did another deal in Southern California and moved back to Florida. I asked a lot of questions. I just said, where, how do you make money in real estate? And that was funny. One of my friend's father said, well, I invest in real estate. I buy foreclosures. I'm literally at the point where I'm saying, what's a foreclosure? He goes, well, the bank takes the home, the county forecloses. I said, okay, well, where are foreclosure sales? So he showed me where the auction was. I showed up, had no idea. But by asking questions and being relentless, you know, another one of my partners used the word viciously pursue. For me, it was, it was relentless. And I was just relentless in the pursuit of real estate, asking questions and chasing down the opportunity, figuring out where the money was. I just asked a lot of questions. And I realized just like every other industry, there's money here and there's no money here. My big mistake was rehabbing houses into a downward market. If I had simply flipped over to the wholesaler and put the risk on the buyer, I would be $10 million plus better off at this point. And so I got completely wiped out, had to start back overnight about, a, you know, it was about a $4 million swing because I went from being a couple million up to being a couple million down and it was terrible. So I, I saw firsthand what it's like to engage the wrong strategy. So I'm very clear with people, you want to get into real estate today and you're new and you don't want to lose everything, 
day trade, day trade real estate, wholesale, even if it's an apartment building, unless you got an amazing operator that you're JVing with, don't buy an apartment building and then just screw it up because people don't realize the pro four number is great, but the actual operation is where you net, where you make that money. Right. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's where people, the pro forma goes out the window. If people, you don't operate right, you don't fill your building, you don't collect your money, you let your repairs go crazy, you're, you've no money. In fact, you're, you're writing checks on these buildings. So I just try to give people real world advice. I want people to win in real estate. And I always try to be brutally honest with what I reasonably believe based on my 15 or 16 years of experience now in real estate, believe is going on and what the opportunity is today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I want to go back and kind of focus on the asset part, which is our first, you know, the A of APS of real estate. So you focus on single family homes. What type of homes do you like to flip? It's a great question. So we buy from a couple of different places. So we've got a Florida statewide program, which is where we go direct to seller. We pull mm-hmm. our own lists. We, we scrub those. We skip trace them ourselves and we cold call them. We'll use a ringless voicemail. We'll use text messaging. So we, we relentlessly pursue these people. And it's only distressed sellers in the state of Florida. That program is, is different than what we do nationwide because we'll buy anything in Florida, any age home, any asset, it's all down to price. But I had to rechange that strategy out of state because if I'm not on the ground, I only can rehab easy stuff. So we figured out, okay, the easiest stuff to rehab is going to be new because new is typically paint carpet. So our buy box out of state is simply 2000 or newer. So if it's built year 2000 or newer, which is 20 years or less, we'll buy it as long as it's priced right. And if it's older, that, that's our cutoff. Our cutoff is new and old. But again, in Florida, it's, we're chasing sellers. Our houses just happen to be the widget where we make our money from it. And we'll chase any asset, any price, any year built. But it's, it's about homing in a really distressed sellers. It's, it's two completely different models, but I had to make sense of it. If I don't have local crews, boots on the ground, make sure that we're always making money. So, and what is exactly distressed? What do you see as distressed, you know, property or, or distressed, you know, owner? Sure. Distressed owner, in my mind, ticks three boxes. One for us, this is our box. One, they can sell. What I mean by that, they're not upside down. And even as I'm telling you this, we're developing a short sale program because as I see the market flip, I recognize I need to jump back into the short sale space. It's funny when you, as you chase market cycles, you realize the stuff you're doing 10 years ago is coming back in in vogue again. So we're going to be dialing up short sales. But for right now, the first box that a seller has to check, which is even before we get into their distress, is can they sell? A lot of people have these massive marketing programs targeting people that can't sell. And then they get their salespeople on the phone or the acquisition and they realize they're upside down. They kill the lead. We kill the leads before we even market to them, before we skip trace them. So I want to only target people that can sell. Now the second box is where we get into the distress. They need to sell. So when they need to sell, there's some sort of a code enforcement lien, looming foreclosure, looming tax deed sale. Perhaps it's it's a non-owner occupied probate property where mm. They're not living in the home, it's just sitting there vacant. So there's some sort of a distress, a divorce, but there's something that, that's causing a need to sell that home. So again, they can sell, they need to sell. The X factor of where we get our best deals are people that recognize they need to sell. And that's something you can't find from a list. 
So we, we try to narrow it down to people that can sell and need to sell. And then our only job with our acquisitions department is to figure out which people actually recognize that need. And so it's a pretty scientific process, but it starts with, with reasoning, not marketing to people who are never going to be your customer, getting really dialed in on the potential customers. And that's what we focus on in Florida. Typically outside of Florida, either asset manager relationships will buy properties from or we'll just buy off auction platforms. And we're simply looking for mispriced assets that are built 2000 or newer. Interesting. And so, you know, I want to move to our second part, which is the process. And I want to talk about the process of flipping a house. So I understand that you find those apartments, those assets with with the list that you have and you nail down basically who, you know, you focus on where you find distressed properties. Now, how do you evaluate? What's the process to evaluate a distressed property? How do you know it's a good deal? Sure. We actually use a calculator, a proprietary calculator, where we, first of all, input what we're going to sell the asset for. So if it's a wholesale, what the wholesale price is, if it's retail, what the exit is. So we always start with the exit first. Then we'll put, if there's any CapEx that needs to be put in, we put in that number, we put in our whole time, and then it gives me a number. My calculator gives me a number. That's my max offer. So I don't start off with the bid and then try to make the numbers work, which a lot of people do. They start off with the premise as a good deal, and then they try to make it work. They play with the numbers. I put in the numbers first, and then I see what the maximum offer I can pay. Then I compare it to a seller's asking price. And if they're lower, obviously, I'm going to take it. I'm not going to come up to my max offer. And if it's more, I'm going to say, well, I can only pay this. And here's why. So it's, it's a numbers-driven approach that always starts with the exit. And then with multifamily, it's a little bit different. But you want to look at your cap rate. You want to look at market cap rates. And you want to make sure that see where it's different is because it's going to be evaluated off of your income criteria, wherever you're trying to land, you should be trying to not be doing four, three and 4%, by the way, if your debt's costing you four or five, but that's a whole other, other topic. So we'll look at where it is today, where the inefficiencies are. We'll try to pro forma with just fixing everything the way it is, where it's going to land. And then if we made a bunch of improvements where that's going to land, that's that stabilized value. So I look at multifamily a little bit different. And a classic point would be, you may have a building that's a six cap, but they haven't raised rent in 20 years. Now that's in a very extreme example, but they're clearly two or $300 under, under rent. And it's a well-maintained property. That is a 12 month stabilization where you can raise your cap rate significantly without having to put a bunch of money. And so the whole discussion of forcing value on multifamily, I think is a dangerous discussion because sometimes people ignore the outside area and they can have the nicest building, but still be in an area where the rent caps 800 or 900 and they're proforming at 1100 bucks, which sounds great thinking that if I put in more money, I'll get more rent. And just like a flip multifamily, an area has a ceiling. It's very price sensitive. I've been doing this a long time and rent within 10% is extremely price sensitive. I found that at almost every price point, you know, if you're at $1,100 and rent's 900, you're not even getting a call. You're not getting a call to look us down under 1,950. Now you're in range. So evaluating properties must be done by numbers. That's the big key. Not off of a feeling. It's got to be based on the market and not based on really anything else. And then also renovation. Renovation and resale and single family, probably the two things that are going to screw you up most. People overestimate the comps and they underestimate the rehab. 
which is like a double disaster on a flip. So we always try to underestimate our resale price and overestimate our capex. And that actually gives you not the opposite of hurting you. It actually builds in a margin of error. Yeah, we do exactly the same. So it's really you know interesting to, to hear you say that. We do exactly the same. We basically, when it comes to the exit cap, we say, okay, we assume that the market is actually not going to be as strong as it is now. So we have a much higher cap rate than the cap rate that we bought the property with, which, you know, the higher the cap rate, the lower the price. And we always have, you know, more money on contingencies and we, we try to overestimate the renovation costs as well. I want to talk about the strategy, you know, for a minute. You mentioned at the beginning that there are multiple cycles that you're looking into the cycles and try to, you know, kind of change your strategy based on where you are. So, you know, first of all, you know, how can you even identify where we are in the market? What tools do you use to do that? Sure. You've got any market research organizations. Uh, Black and Knight would be one. People that specialize in providing data. The reason I listen to most people like that, that's, that's their business. The problem is you look at an article in Forbes, there's always a spin on it or any article, for instance. And so I don't like articles as much as I like data because I look at the data and then I can make the decision. And so that's why I really like third-party data. And so something simple like the manufacturing index, people don't, you never hear people talk about that. They, they always talk about the inverse yield curve. And anyone who thinks you're an expert, they're like, well, the inverse yield curve, and that means there's a recession coming. That's just one measurement of an economy. Yeah, ultimately, economies are driven by spending. So I look at stuff like consumer spending, consumer confidence. Manufacturing index, when that, when that starts to dip, that's pointing to an economic recession. So I, I try to look at four or five or six or 10 of these items and then make my own decision rather than listening to what someone told me. And then furthermore, with this market cycle, it's so different than last time. Last time, they're handing out money to everybody. Now you've got certain markets in this country, that are, that are like Southern California, that are just extremely aggressively priced. They're really, really high. You've got other markets in Pennsylvania, because we buy in places like that where houses are five grand, or in Dayton, Ohio. I mean, I'm just giving a couple places where I know that we buy dirt, dirt cheap. Literally, the hottest market in 10 years, and houses are five grand. So that, that tells me there's a lot more common sense, this market cycle, people are, houses are trading a low price for a reason. Houses are trading at a high price for a reason. You got a whole flood of supply of money this time around. Institutions have got involved, not only buying the loans, but buying the assets so that there's an institutional backstop. So I'm trying to really look at intelligently where the opportunity is. We've, we've identified one for us here in Florida. It's the newer build homes that the, that the, the hedge funds are not buying. So I fully intend on buying Class C assets that are 2,000 or newer and buying every one of them that I can because the heads, institutions stay in the A and B and there's also going to be a big dip in the C, C plus because of the fact that FHA, you look at defaults in FHA, they're about 9%. They've gone up as high as 12. I mean, it's crazy. That means one in 10 FHA loan is, is bound to fail. It's, it's nuts when you think about it, especially conventional and other forms of financing are down in that 2 and 3% normal default range. And talking about statistics, if you look at the defaults, right now, today, you'll see in 2019, they're ticking back up. So I see manufacturing coming down. I see consumer confidence going down. I see default rates nationally going up. And if I just told you those three things, it, it's pointing to a problem. But the, the danger with looking at the statistics today, just locking in one number, is you're not looking at the trend. 
I want to look at the trend of where it was as well as where it is today because I want to see what direction things are going. One thing that actually does not point to an economy is the unemployment rate. It's still on the way down. How can you explain that? How do you explain that? Because the economy today is healthy. Economies typically don't say, hey, we're screwed. You know, people are still growing. Businesses are growing. Credit is flowing. It's when they start and they just lowered the rates. So there's more, you know, it's cheaper money out there. So until all that stuff grinds to a halt, you'll see that that things, the party's going to keep going. Same thing happened last market cycle. You know, people are buying two and three cars and two and three houses and everybody's happy and you know, everybody's just mortgage to the health, but credit was cheap and money was flowing. And until money starts to tighten up and the Fed's got lots of tools, raising the reserve rate for banks, which forced them to lend less money, you know, raising that Fed funds rate. I mean, they've got different tools in their tool belt, but right now money's flowing. The, the Feds are putting some more supply of money into the market. It, it's, it's kind of nuts what's happening, but you know, I think there's some political things at play without getting political. There is an election next year. So there's a strong incentive to keep the party going at least through yes. November 2020. And I think that anyone who says that's not true is probably naive to just the reality of life. And I, I try to always not put politics or religion, but just look at the facts. But what we need to do is look at several things and not just hang our hats. Going back to our conversation, if we just said unemployment's at a record low, therefore there's no recession coming, that wouldn't be a factual statement. It's, it's not a statement that's driven by numbers. It's just taking one number, picking it out of the sky and telling everybody everything's fine. Most people, for instance, today in Tampa that are telling people that houses are going to go up forever are selling rehabbed homes and they're selling turnkey rentals. So, of course, you know, there's a narrative there where they want to keep the party going. I'm just trying to look at the data, analyze it, see where the market's going and make decisions on where it is today as well as where I think it's going to go. That's wonderful. I think a lot of people are kind of ignoring where we are in a cycle right now. And it's such a key understanding. And it plays such a key role in, in your strategy, because the way you behave today is not how you, you know, behave back in 2013 and back in 2007. And you can't, you know, still the economy is good. You cannot behave the way that you behaved two and three years ago, because it's short, you know, it's not going to continue forever. And you need to prepare yourself for for the next recession, which we don't know when it's going to happen. Well, thank you. You know, thanks so much for that. I think it's, it was very, very, you know, eye-opening and in, interesting discussion about the market cycles, which I think not enough people, you know, talk about. So Lee, we are at the lightning round questions. Are you ready? Ready. All right. What's your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby is I actually like working out a lot, I like boxing. My favorite hobby right now is boxing. Oh, wow. That's nice. How many, how many times a week do you box? I try to box three days a week and that's crazy considering if you see my neck surgery, I had two neck surgeries last year and oh, everything's yeah. healed up. So I'm really enjoying being back, getting fit again. And I like boxing, love training. So Awesome. Awesome. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? The one thing that people don't know about me, I am big into spearfishing. Spearfishing is a huge passion of mine. Not a lot of people do it and I love it. Yeah, I think it takes uh, a lot of patience. Yes, it does. Well, you go hunt the fish instead of waiting there in a boat for the fish to bite your hook. It's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> go hunt nice. <laughs> so what do you wish you knew when you first started out? 
I wish I knew that there was market cycles when I first started out. I, I didn't even understand this, this, the conversation we're having now. I just knew that real estate prices today were here. My job was to buy down here. If I was told that the price here today is actually really high compared to two years ago, and that you're, you're rehabbing now into a risky market, I wouldn't have done what I did. I would have just sold everything and wholesaled it. I just didn't know. And I was operating off way too thin margins. And that, that shift in the market just wiped me out. All right. What's your number one advice to a real estate investor who wants to scale their business? You got to focus on systems, processes, and people. So systems and processes are one side of the business, but the people pushing the buttons are a key component that a lot of people forget. They invest in the technology and then they try to cheap out on their people. So they're not focused on hiring A players, which means that you can have the best system in the world, but you get terrible data in your system, so nothing's gonna run right. So I focus on great systems and processes through a lot of documentation, but then I also have a huge focus now on hiring A players to run those systems. Awesome. So lastly, where can people find you? Absolutely, if you go to realadvisors.com, that's mm -hmm. our, our site where we teach multiple forms of real estate, that's realadvisors.com, or if you wanna hit me up on IG, it's Real Lee Carney on Instagram. All right. Perfect. Thank you, Lee, so much. I really appreciate, you know, you being part of the show. And I think this, you know, conversation is is really interesting. And I'm really glad we had that. I think, you know, we don't know what the future holds, but we can definitely prepare for it. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on the show. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.